read a story recently about a man and his family who were taking a trip to New Zealand. They had always wanted to go, so they had saved up their money for several years, and then they finally took the trip. And uh, while on the flight over there, they were filling out all the necessary customs uh, and immigration forms. And uh, while they were doing that, they were something uh, struck them on, on one of the forms that they had not prepared for. On one of the forms was the question of whether or not any one of them had ever been arrested. And though this was a Christian couple, before coming to Christ, the husband had had a rocky past. He had at one time been arrested for burglary to support a drug habit and was convicted and spent a year in jail. So wanting to be completely truthful, on the form, he marked yes in that box, and they went on. And when they arrived in, in Auckland, New Zealand, an officer in customs noticed that he had marked yes on the box, so he called for someone from immigration to come over and question the man. So someone came over, and the man told those listening the entire story, and then at the end, he took time to share with them about how Christ had transformed his life. But of course, they weren't too interested in the second half of that story because they had one rule that said that no one who had spent more than 12 months in jail in their home country would ever be allowed into their country. So sadly, they did not budge and this man had to say goodbye to his wife and his kids and get on a plane and fly home. See, it didn't matter to those in the customs office what had taken place in this guy's life. Because of that one mess up, he would never be allowed into their country. It was a non-negotiable. There was nothing that could be done. So this man had to leave his wife and his kids and take the next flight home. Now, that's a sad story, isn't it? But I tell you that sad story this morning to communicate a beautiful truth to you. Though there was nothing that could be done for this man in this situation, though he could not clear his criminal record, no matter how hard he tried, so that he could enter into this beautiful country with this family spiritually get this his record had been completely erased his record had been wiped out listen believers speaking to believers in here for a moment this morning though mistakes from our past will follow many of us until we die Though we encounter people in this life who will forever hold the past against us, praise the Lord that that is not true of God and His dealings with us. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 21. We're finishing our sermon series this morning in John entitled, Knowing Jesus from John. And what we've done throughout this entire series is, week in and week out, we've taken a chapter a week out of this great book, and each week 
we have been asking this question, what does this chapter teach me about Jesus? And we've learned all sorts of things about him so far, haven't we? We've learned that he is Redeemer, Savior, the living water, the Son of God, the bread of life, the great teacher. He is the truth, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. He is the king, the true servant, the comforter, the vine, the priest. We've also learned that he was rejected and crucified and resurrected. Well, this morning we close out this series in a fitting way. We close out by talking about Christ as our restorer. So turn to John 21, if you have not, and let's talk about knowing Jesus as our restorer. And I want you to notice something very interesting here. Notice that a great deal of this chapter, this last chapter in John's book, focuses in upon one individual in particular. And who is that individual? It's Peter. Though John mentions in the first half of this chapter the account of Jesus appearing to seven of his disciples along the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, the focus in this chapter is mainly upon Peter. Why? I mean, I thought the focus of this chapter is upon knowing Jesus as our restorer. What does Peter have to do with that? Well, flip over to John 18. Think about what happened in this chapter. Remember? Remember what happened to Peter in this chapter? Yeah, after Jesus is arrested, people began to approach Peter and they try to associate him with Christ. And what does Peter do? He denies him. He denies knowing Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. So here in John 18... John gives us a detailed account here of Peter denying Christ. And then notice that we don't hear much more about Peter till John 21. Now he's mentioned in John 20. We're told that he's approached by Mary after she sees the empty tomb and he's with John. And they take off in a dead sprint to the tomb to see if what they said is true. But really we don't have much about Peter from John 18 until this chapter. So John really, he, he leaves us hanging when it comes to Peter. The last time Peter was the focus was in chapter 18 when he failed Jesus. But thankfully, we have John chapter 21. Because in John 21, John gives us wonderful closure to Peter's story by explaining how Jesus restores him. So what we're going to do for the rest of the morning is we're going to look at this story of restoration in John chapter 21 and, and we're going to draw out some principles, some key principles about what it takes to be restored to the Lord and we're also going to discuss what should result from a life that has been restored. First, we learn here that to be restored... We must first be broken before God. To be restored, we must first be broken before God. In the first part of John 21, Jesus appears to his disciples for a third time since his resurrection. And notice how he does it. 
We're told that his disciples are out on the water fishing. They're not having much success, are they? They haven't caught much of anything, and Jesus calls out to them from the shore and tells them to throw their net on the right side of the boat. We're told that when they do, they're unable to even pull in the net because of the number of fish that they catch. And after this miraculous catching of fish, they, they know the person on the shore is the Lord Jesus. So they go and they, they, they begin to turn the boat around to go and meet him on the shore. And notice here that Peter can't even wait. Even though there's just a little ways out, we're told that Peter puts on his outer garments. He had them off because they were hot. And look at what the text tells us tells us that Peter threw himself into the sea and swam toward the shore while the rest brought the boat in, dragging this net full of fish behind. And when they get to Jesus, he has breakfast waiting for them. And it's a nice breakfast of fish and bread. Now let me ask you this. How many of y'all had fish and bread for breakfast this morning? I had a granola bar. Um, but I bet it was pretty good. But look at chapter 21, verse 9. John tells us, When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Now remember that charcoal fire, okay? With fish laid out on it and bread. So they, they, they get to land, and they go over to Jesus, and he has a charcoal fire in place with fish and bread for breakfast. Now notice in particular that charcoal fire. It's not by coincidence that John makes mention of this. There's another time in Scripture when a charcoal fire is mentioned. You know where that is? John 18. Flip back to John 18 again. Look at verse 17. John 18, beginning in verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers have made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Verse 25, skip on down. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of this, his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with them? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. So around a charcoal fire, in John 18, Peter denies Christ three times. And notice here in John 21 that he finds himself around a charcoal fire once again, and again, this is not by accident. Jesus has arranged this scene for Peter to take Peter back to the events of John 18, back to this error, back to when he had failed him. And notice what he does. Look at chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now let's stop there for a minute. Let's focus in on that phrase. Do you love me more than these? This has been interpreted in a number of ways. 
Uh, some have interpreted this to mean that Jesus is talking about the fish. He's asking Peter, do you love me more than the fish you're eating? But I, I, I don't think that's on point. A, a few more commentators believe that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than your, your buddies? Do you love me more than you love your friends here? And I really don't believe that's on point either. I, I agree with the commentators who say that what Jesus is asking here is, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Let me explain the reason why I believe that's what Jesus is asking here. Because throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter has possessed this overconfidence bordering on arrogance when it comes to his devotion to the Lord. Look at Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35. Flip over to Matthew 26, 31 through 35. Then Jesus said to them, You all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. This has been Peter's mentality throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. He's maintained this attitude of, I'm your most faithful. I'm your most devoted disciple. And he's constantly setting himself above the rest. I mean, think about what's just taken place at the beginning of, of John 21. While the other disciples are, are pulling the boat to shore, what does Peter do? He throws on his outer garments and it says he throws himself into the sea to get to Jesus. Peter has had this mentality throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. He's constantly speaking out and setting himself above the pack. He's constantly saying and doing things that says, I'm your most devoted disciple. Though everybody else falls away, Jesus, not me. I'm with you till the end, till the death. So Jesus recreates his scene in John 21, and he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And notice he doesn't ask him once or twice, but three times. Now, isn't that interesting? And I know the debates that go on about the interchanging use of the word love, phileo and agape. We're not going to get into that. What I want to focus on is this. In chapter 18 and in chapter 21, we have a charcoal fire and three questions addressed to Peter. Chapter 18, the question was, Peter, do you know Jesus? And he responded three times, no, I do not. And here in chapter 21, you have three questions. Jesus asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Now imagine how humbling that had to be for Peter to hear that. Jesus is reminding him of the three denials by asking him three times, do you love me? And Peter knew what he was getting at because we're told in verse 17 that he was grieved by the question. Now why was Peter grieved? Because he was being called out. 
And again, why is Jesus doing this? What's the point of him calling out Peter in this way? Well, he's humbling Peter. He's breaking Peter. He's showing Peter his need. Though it seems as if Jesus is being too hard on Peter and kicking him while he's down, he is in fact teaching Peter a valuable lesson. He's showing Peter what it takes to be his disciple. He's showing him, if you want to be restored, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me and live for me and be devoted to me, you have to first be broken before me. You have to come to the end of yourself. This mentality that you can be who God has called you to be and live how God has called you to live through your own personal efforts and devotion, Jesus says you've got to put that down. You've got to do away with that. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to view yourself as shipwrecked and stranded and completely in need if you are going to be restored to me and used by me. And folks, the same is true of us. It is. This is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. Listen to this. For you to be useful to God, you must first be broken before God. And we see this in Peter's life. Though Peter, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, was jumping out of the boat to walk on water with him and speaking out when Jesus tries to wash their feet and pledging his devotion to him over dinner and grabbing a sword to protect him and jumping out of boats to get to him, it's only after these events, the events of John 18 and this encounter with Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias over breakfast in John 21, it's only after that time Is Peter truly useful to God in ministry? He had to first be broken before he was useful. You know, we have this ingrained in us that we are good enough and we have good enough within us to be right before God and to do what he's called us to do. This was was what Peter thought. He thought, I I got this. He said, Jesus, if it's up to me, I'm going to follow you till the end. I'm going to follow you till the death. Well, folks, get this. Peter thought that he had things in the bag. He thought he had the ability to follow Christ on his own and notice the results. He ends up denying Christ, and he ends up separated and estranged from him. We learn from Peter here that we cannot do it on our own. I heard someone say recently, one of the main hindrances to our growth and godliness is that we're in the way. How true is that? Before you can be useful to him, you must be broken before him. Now let me say this, maybe you're here this morning and you're the opposite of Peter. You feel like... You're not someone who's very qualified to serve the Lord. Maybe you've said to yourself at one time or another, God could never use me. I have nothing to offer. I'm average at best. I'm insignificant and ordinary. Well, here's the good news for you guys. If this is you, you're in a good spot. You're well on your way to a fruitful life. If you're thinking along these lines, if you're reasoning in this way, you are the very type of person that God delights in using. The opposite is also true. If your mentality is, here I am, God. 
to the rescue. I'm here to improve upon your kingdom work with my giftedness. If you come with your religious resume in hand and think that God would be fortunate to have you on the team, know that you're the least likely person to be used by God. God breaks those types of people or he passes them on by. God has very little interest in using the proud and the pompous, the overconfident and the arrogant. He delights in working in and through the unlikely and the broken to accomplish his kingdom work. So we learn here that before we can be restored to God and useful for him in ministry, we must first be broken before him. Second, after being broken, what should result is a willingness to be used by him. So first, you must be broken before him, and then second, you must allow yourself to be used by God. Notice in verses 15 through 17 that while God is humbling Peter, at the same time he's commissioning him. First he shows him his need and then he commissions him. Notice three times Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Let's take a moment to just camp out here, focus on that phrase, feed my sheep. Notice here that God is calling Peter to be a shepherd, isn't he? To be a pastor. Someone who feeds and cares for and tends to his followers, his sheep. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been the shepherd of the sheep. We learned about this in uh, John 10, right? When we talked about Jesus as the true and good shepherd. But he's about to leave his disciples. But though he is still the, the chief shepherd, though he's leaving, he's still the chief shepherd, as Peter calls him in 1 Peter 5, he leaves his people under the care of his under-shepherds. So here in John 21, Jesus calls for Peter to be an under-shepherd of his flock. He says, I want you to shepherd my flock. I want you to care for my people and feed them and tend to them. And we learn later that this is not just a position that is specific to Peter, right? Though he speaks to Peter specifically here, this is not a position that is specific to Peter. He calls for the rest of his followers to make disciples as well, right? He calls for the rest of his disciples to pour their lives into others and, and to care for and feed and tend to his people. And folks, this call, it extends to us today, doesn't it? It does. How are you doing in this area of your life? Are you investing in people? You may say, Grandma, you know, I've not been called to be a pastor or a shepherd. I don't have the gift of teaching. God has not called me to lead in this way. Well, guess what? If, if that's your mentality, I'm sorry to tell you, Scripture is clear. That each and every one of us as believers, no matter who we are, we are to be shepherding others at some level. It's true. We're to be getting established in truth, as it says in our mission statement, so that we can be equipped for ministry, as it says in our mission statement. We're to be growing in godliness so that we can in turn pour our lives into others. Now, there are different degrees to this. Guys, you may be shepherding your spouse. Parents, you may be shepherding your children. Grandparents, 
You may be shepherding your grandchildren or you may be discipling others in the church or in a small group setting or involved in something even bigger than that. But we're all called to shepherd and disciple others at some level. We're called at some level to equip others, to teach and to impart wisdom to others and to feed and care for and tend to God's people, the body of Christ, so that the church can be built up. You can't get away from this in Scripture. Especially when you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus. He taught this, he exampled this, he lived this out, and he called for us as followers to do the same. Now let me call your attention to the fact that though Jesus has called for us to be his under-shepherds and, and to disciple others, it's important to remember that he himself is the chief shepherd. Notice he tells Peter, feed whose sheep? My sheep. You know, at times, some of us fool ourselves into thinking that we're indispensable as God's servants. We think we're the LeBron James on God's team, and that if we don't show up, ministry just won't happen. Well, let me humble some of you this morning a little bit if I can. Though we think in that way, nothing can be further from the truth. Though God uses us, and though we can bring glory to Him as we shepherd others, God in no way, shape, or form needs any of us. He has no needs, as it says in Scripture. He doesn't need us. This is very important for us to keep in mind. I love the way John Wesley put it. He said this, God buries His workmen, but carries on His work. How do you like that? I love that. I need to be reminded of that. God will bury His workmen, but will carry on His work. Folks, we're simply God's workmen. We're mere servants of His. We exist to serve Him and bring glory to Him. That's the reason why we're put on this planet. That's the reason why we exist. We're called to be his under-shepherds. We're called to disciple his sheep. We're called to direct people to Christ. And we're called to come alongside people and help them move forward in their faith so that they can grow in godliness and become more and more like their chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. So we've learned here that before we can be restored to God and useful for him in ministry, we must first be broken before him and second after being broken before God, what should result is a willingness to be used by Him. And third and finally, we also see in this text that restored people are not only broken before God and used by God, but they are sold out for God. Look at chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was preparing for this sermon, it had been a while since I've read through John. And when I read verse 18, I stopped there for a minute. I was a little confused. I wasn't sure of what was being said at first and how it fit. I mean, listen to it again. 
What does Jesus mean when he says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. What does he mean here? How does that fit? Let me ask you this. If you put that verse out by itself and just hung it out there by itself without any context around it, would you know what Jesus is saying to Peter? It'd be hard to tell, wouldn't it? Without the context. That's why it's so important that we, that we read and understand Scripture within the context in which it was written. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 makes it clear. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. What Jesus is doing here is, he's looking into the future, and he's telling Peter how he's going to die. He's telling him how he's going to die. Now, how is verse 18 describing how Peter is going to die? Well, as you do a little digging and studying, here's what you, here's what you find. First, how many of y'all know how Peter died? Anybody know? Just shout it out. Yeah, he was crucified, right? He was crucified upside down. That's exactly right. Now, knowing this, let's look at the description again. Jesus says you will stretch out your hands. Common reference to being crucified, right? He also says, though at one time you had the freedom to dress yourself and go wherever you wanted, that freedom is going to be stripped from you and another will dress you and take you to where you do not want to go. Jesus is saying, like me, you're going to be stripped of your garments and dressed for crucifixion. You're going to be carried to a place you don't want to go, a place where you're going to be put to death, and the way you're going to die is you're going to be stretched out and crucified. So Jesus... On the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, over breakfast, after breaking Peter down and commissioning him, he tells him that he is going to give his life up for him. That's what he tells Peter. After commissioning Peter, he says, you're going to be sold out to me. You're going to selflessly serve me to the point of giving your own life for me. And that's exactly what happened. And there may be some of you in here this morning upon hearing that you think to yourself how tragic you know you may be thinking to yourself i'm all for serving the lord but let's not get carried away here i mean i don't know about serving him to the death you may be thinking you know i'm i'm willing to serve the lord but as long as it's not too costly there's a story of a missionary in Brazil, who was at a religious festival who noticed a sign above one of the booths that read, Cheap Crosses. And he thought to himself, that's what many Christians are looking for these days. Cheap crosses. Many are willing to bear a cross as long as it's not too costly. Folks, I'm sorry to tell you, there's no such thing. Doesn't make any sense. A cheap cross? Dr. J.H. Jowett once said this, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If we're going to follow Christ's example, if we're going to make an impact in his kingdom, we're going to have to be willing to be sold out. We're going to have to be willing to do whatever it takes to advance God's kingdom. And, And some of you, upon hearing that again, will say, that's just a bit too extreme. 
Surely Christ will understand where I'm coming from. Well, let me remind you of his words in Matthew 16, verse 24. This is in your spiritual growth guide for the week. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what he's getting at with Peter here in verse 19 when he says, follow me. After telling Peter, you're going to lose your life, he says, follow me. Follow him where? To the cross. To the cross. Saying, Peter, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that's literally what Peter does. And that's the call that Jesus gives to us all. Now, for some of you who think that being completely sold out for Jesus and and being completely willing to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ is a bit too extreme and may not be what Jesus has in mind, let me ask you this. What part of take up your cross, take up your instrument of death, don't you understand? There's a great song that we listen to in the car with our girls called Willing. And this song really gets at this. In this song are these lyrics. It says, may I be willing to pay the price. May I be willing to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ. Folks, this is when your faith gets real. When you deal with this question. You want to know, if you're serious about serving the Lord, how you answer this question will make things crystal clear. Are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ? Those who have been restored and made right with Him respond to this question like Peter. Now, I'm not saying you all suffer the same fate as Peter. That's not what I'm saying. I don't know what God will call you to give up in your life. But what I am saying is this. God's people are those types of people who are sold out for him. God's people are those types of people who are willing to pay the price and willing to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ. So let me ask you this. Am I describing you this morning? Is this true for you? We've been created, folks, to bring glory to God. Like I said earlier, that's the sole reason we've been put on this planet. And this mentality, this desire, this willingness to give up everything for Christ is what truly brings glory to Him. Did you know that? Look at verse 19 again. We're told here that Jesus, by talking about Peter's death, was showing Peter, what does it say? He says he was showing Peter what kind of death he was to glorify God. Wow. Jesus is saying that Peter in his death is going to bring glory to God. Now, how does that happen? I'll tell you how. By Peter being sold out for Christ, by Peter being willing to and even giving up his life for the Lord Jesus. He showed those around him that a relationship with God and a life lived for him through Christ is more precious than anything else. And folks, that's how you glorify God. 
You glorify Him when you live a life that's sold out for Him. You glorify Him when you live your life to prove that He is more precious than anything else. That's how you glorify God. That's what we're put on this planet to do. Maybe you're here this morning and these things are not true of you. You've not been broken before God. And as a result, you're not being used by Him and you're not living a life that is sold out for Him. Maybe up to this point, your, your life, your attitude has been similar to, to that of Peter before his denial in John 18. Maybe you've thought to yourself, there's something you bring to the table when it comes to your spiritual life. Maybe you're thinking, I'm doing the best I can and surely God will be okay with that. If this is you, this is my prayer for you this morning. And you may think it harsh, but I believe it to be necessary. I pray God breaks you this morning. I pray that he would humble you in every way. That he would bring you to the end of yourself and show you your sinfulness and your need of a Savior. Because then and only then can you be made right with God. Then and only then can you be used by God. And then and only then can you be sold out for God. So that's my prayer for you. Maybe you're already there this morning. Maybe God has been humbling you this very day and you see that you're in need right now. I pray if this was you, that you would cry out to God this very morning. She would say, Lord, I, I need you. I can't do it without you. I'm in need of a Savior. Save me. Pray you would do that right now. There's no better time to make that decision than right now. Let's pray.